You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Sue Enquest. Sue played softball at UCLA from 1975 to 1978. She was part of the team that won the 1978 Women's College World Series and became UCLA's first All-American softball player. In 1980, she transitioned into coaching and her teams have gone on to win 10 national championships and produce 65 All-Americans and 15 Olympians. She was also a coach for the 1996 Olympic gold medal winning softball team. In 2008, she was inducted into the International Women's Sports Hall of Fame. Sue is a coach who believes in the type of transformational leadership where, in her words, you are more collaborative truthful and positive in developing skills with your athletes. She believes that when people feel safe, they will go for it when it comes to courage and that your role as a coach is to be the eyes of the athlete's development and feed them with what you are seeing in their progress. She is also highly articulate, passionate and a firm believer in the importance of curiosity as a leader to ensure that your program is always changing and developing. She also explains that high-performing teams have high standards, expectations, accountability, and efficient failure recovery routines. 
Other key parts of this interview for me were her view on the importance of a next event mindset in keeping failure small relative to your integrity and character. Her advice on managing your weak voice that comes up from your subconscious and building on your strong voice. And how, as a white woman of privilege, she feels that she must advocate for people who didn't have access to the excellence that she did. This was a thought-provoking conversation, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And just before we go to the interview, if you're a first-time listener, you can check out our library of interviews with other great coaches at our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. And while you're there, if you would like to help our podcast, which is fully independent and free from ads, you can follow the link to our Patreon page where we offer exclusive content to our supporters. And now, please enjoy our interview with Sue Enquist. The Great Coaches Podcast. Good morning, Sue Enquist, or rather, good evening from a deep, dark Bucharest. How are you today? I'm doing great, and good morning here on the Southern California coast of San Clemente, Pacific Standard Time. Could you tell us where you are and what the weather's like and perhaps what you've been up to so far today? Well, it is early here in the morning, right? And I live in San Clemente and it's a small beach town, little sleepy surf town in South Orange County. And my first love is actually the ocean. So I identify as a surfer more than I do a softball coach or a consultant. And my days usually start with a morning surf check. I'm always hoping to be in the water first. If there's no surf, then I have to do the dreaded jog or run. It's just a great way to start my day with that balance before I take on the the grind of what life throws at us. Well, I hope wherever people are listening today, they can sense a little of that sun and that energy that you have with you today, which I hope we can pull into this interview as well. Yes. And it's uh, we're in our mid, low 70s right now, and it'll probably get up to a high 70s. So we're very fortunate to have that moderate weather. Right. Well, from that point, we should jump into it then, and we should start talking all things leadership. And perhaps where I could start, Sue, is with some of the great coaches that you've had firsthand experience with. There's Sharon Backus, Paddy Gasso, Mike Kindera, Joe Evans, and of course, the great John Wooden. And I guess from this perspective, what and this experience you've had with all these great coaches What is it you think they do differently that sets them apart? I think all those people that you spoke of are really anchored in their enacted values. I think a great way to discern a leader that performs over time in their designated title or just in their influence as possibly a mother or father or sister, brother, aunt, uncle Because the leadership in some instances is a title and in other instances is around influence. And the one thing that all of those have, one thing that they all share is they actually live their values and reach the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And they don't change who they are despite the conditions that have been thrown at them. That lends to a great environment to be influenced by. And so... For me, when I think of comparing like a John Wooden to a Sharon Bacchus, they had really, really high highs and really low lows throughout their career. But when you speak to them 1v1 and you watch them and watch them demonstrate their values through how they prepare, how they compete, how they fail and recover, it's very consistent, it's very predictable. And that stability is comforting, especially in a time like today where we have so much instability and uncertainty. So 
those leaders that just live their values, they're enacted every day, I think are the ones that are really winning the game today around influence. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your values, but perhaps actually if we could go back a little bit and start with some of your backstory, because it's really fascinating. And one of the things that caught my eye when I was preparing for today was the fact that in high school, you actually played on the boys' baseball team. Now, today, this is very common, but I guess back then it must have been unusual. And I imagine you might have received a lot of negative comments. And I'm wondering, did that experience have any impact, either positive or negative, on the way that you went about your coaching later on? Yes. Well, first of all, to give people context, I competed in high school in the 70s, and I am a recipient of Title IX access. And when that federal mandate, and we're very fortunate to live in a country where we have a federal mandate that protects equality for boys and girls in education and athletics. Now, is it enforced as much as it should be? Probably not. But to know that we have a judicious system that's going to back us, it afforded me the opportunity to have access to the boys team, which was more competitive. And it was quite controversial because Title IX was enacted in 1972 and I tried out for the baseball team in 1974. So we're in the infancy of Title IX. And so for a woman to try to break through these barriers and play with the boys was from an outsider looking in, very disruptive. But from the inside out, I had a wonderful leader in our baseball coach, Coach Cludy. I had wonderful teammates that said, we want her on our team. She's got a strong arm and she can hit oppo. So from the internal perspective, I felt very emotionally safe. From the outward looking in, it was quite controversial. And we would go and play. I led the league in getting beaned. People were sending messages, but it really actually strengthened my resolve and laid a foundation for me to really be able to take on anything. But even prior to that, I had an amazing foundation in the way I was raised because I'm the daughter of a military father and a mother who was a nurse. So I had this wonderful balance between rigid standards that are not flexible and around excellence and a mother who really taught me to remain curious around people and things that I don't have any experience with. And I could share with our audience, that's one thing, if we could just balance that out a little bit, that idea of being around people not like us and people that traveled on a path not like ours isn't and shouldn't be intimidating. It should fill us with curiosity and openness. And so I already had that at a really young age, and I know the value of being seen and being heard. I understand when people become advocates for you. It's hard enough to sing your own song around breaking a barrier, but to have other people stand by your side, my teammates, my coaches, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And it was the springboard to get to UCLA because the media coverage. Well, I want to get to UCLA, but Sue, perhaps if I could go on a little bit of a journey first, because I've read where you talk about becoming an engineer of belief for your athletes, particularly when they're in a tough spot. And you also use this language around using a learning bridge to help focus them. And I'd really be interested if you could tell us a little bit more about this. I think what's interesting is when you become a coach and if you're doing it as a volunteer or a paid position, you're usually in a position to know more than the student athlete that you're working with. And we get caught up into this really important but dangerous trap 
It's an important trap in the sense that we have to measure gaps. This is where you are. This is where you need to be. But we create too much of an imbalance around the distance between those two points. And we have a tendency to needle and focus and point consistently on the fact that they're not there yet. Instead of having more of a transformational attitude around teaching, to go down to their level and to be with them in their infancy of learning right by their side. Not authoritative, but more collaborative. And to look them in the eye and say, this part's going to be hard, but I'm going to be right there next to you and I'm going to catch you doing it right. I'm going to take your inventory of success. And that inventory Monday through Friday is going to be the bridge you're going to climb over on game day. So on game day, you feel like you've earned the right to be ready. All we're asking the athlete to do is to climb that bridge to the other side of performance day, the test day, and be able to say, I'm ready. I think we've romanticized confidence. I think society has made that some sort of pinnacle that we're supposed to put on our lapel or to be able to say, I have this product called confidence. In my experience, that was elusive. Confidence was a term used after the fact. I was feeling really confident in that third at bat when I hit the game winner. It's a reflective term for me. All I'm asking my players to do is just say, I'm ready and believe I can. And that's that simple. So simplifying on game day is the key to climbing that bridge. You can't climb that bridge if you don't have that inventory. And as a coach, I'm responsible for being your eyes of development. And I've got to feed you what I see in your development, not just give you that big, huge gap. You're here and you need to be there. And that's what we get caught in. So you talked a minute ago about your parents and you described them as structured and empathetic, you know, military and and nursing and medical care. And what's fascinating is your career almost has two halves that match those personalities. There was the early part of your career where you talked around being quite firm, quite strict, quite driven. And then the second part of your career, it changed. You became much more caring. And I think this is what you're so well known for now all over the world when it comes to coaching. Did your parents, who I know were heavily involved in your career, did they spot this evolution in you as a leader? I think they, at that point, I was already deep in adulthood. Uh, I think they watched it and really could see my strengths and my weaknesses. Early in my career, I was just transactional. It was a contract I had with the student-athletes. I control everything. I have the knowledge. I'll hand it out and you close the gap. And I didn't really consciously know that what was happening because I just was so into competing and getting better and closing gaps on skill sets and absolutely loved it. But in the process of not listening to the student athlete, to those that are in business, not listening to the employee, I actually created a bigger gap of connectivity with our teams. And at some point, that is going to take a toll on your student-athletes. It takes a toll on your program. And for me, there was a really defining moment. People always ask, what was the defining moment? Because what I want people to know is when you make this transition from being a transactional leader to a transformational leader, transformational meaning I'm going to be collaborative with you, I'm going to go on this journey with you. I'm going to listen to your needs because I am the host of the party. I am the servant 
to the program and I'm going to facilitate the conditions for you to be your best, it doesn't mean I'm letting go of standards. I'm letting go of benchmarks. I'm letting go of accountability. They actually coexist. It's more of a process change. So I never, people say, gosh, the end of your career, you got soft. It wasn't I got soft. I just started listening, creating better conditions for my athletes to enjoy the grind of excellence because excellence doesn't negotiate. If you're supposed to be the best team in the country, there's a very small margin for error. I couldn't let go of those standards and say, oh, let's just have confetti and barbecues Monday through Friday. We knew that wouldn't work. But I could listen to the student athlete and say, ooh, we've got the majority of the team is really feeling the pain of those seven games in a row that we just had. I can adjust and adapt on Tuesday and then come on strong on Wednesday and get us ready again for Thursday and Friday competition. And I didn't do that early in my career. And I think, shoot, I think we could have won even more. And so this idea that being empathetic means you have to give up standards is not the case. It just means we're capable of more as a leader. It's not just a transaction. Anybody can do the transaction of coaching, grab a book, play out the outline. They either did it or they didn't. You either start or you don't start and go from there. But what we have to remember, 99% of you out there, you're not going to win the title. 99% of you aren't going to win the sales contest. 99% of you aren't going to be the top in your industry. So now what are we going to do? What are you hanging on to? The one thing we can hang on to is the thing we control, and that's the process and the conditions we lay down for our employees and for our student-athletes. And I really felt like at the, the last third of my head coaching career, I really felt like I got a grip on that and I was able to enjoy it and have them enjoy this process where there's a very small margin for error around performance. So if we could just go back a little bit, because what's interesting is that you describe this evolution that you had in your approach and your leadership style, but both styles were very effective. There's 10 championships in all, there's 84, 85, then there's 88, 89, 90, and 03 and 04. That's three occasions where you had sustained success. So both approaches worked. And is there a common theme around high-performing teams moving forward without a sense of entitlement? Have you managed well, to, to coach that and unlock that? I think so. It, whether it be softball, I'm now working in volleyball, soccer, other sports. And the thing that's a common through all high-performing teams is this understanding that we're just a cross-section of society. And the leaders in these programs understand that players are driven by performance, transactional, and they're driven by relationship. Who I'm competing with and how I'm interacting with them as humans. Some teams have more performance orientation. Some teams have more relationship orientation. But the key is those leaders understand what drives their teams. And if the needle is pointing more in one direction than the other, they create the conditions for that team to be heard around what the majority of them want. All of these teams that enjoy success, share the high standard, the high expectation, the high accountability, the great efficient failure recovery. They all share that. But I want to go beyond how we, our default mechanism is to speak about teams that have won because in society it's linear. You won, so you were successful. But I can look back and think about years that we won and I don't think I treated my student athletes correctly. If I could go back, I would change it. I didn't need to be so accusatory. I didn't need to be mean. I simply 
can hold the standard without emotion, hold them accountable without being demeaning. And that's where, to our listeners that are veterans, and if you can see me with the air quotes, veterans, I'm going to encourage you to lean into listening more and being a facilitator and not be the person that says, hey, that's just the way I've always done it. Hey, that's me. I'm old school. Hey, that's me. Can't teach an old dog new tricks. That is really antiquated language. And you're telling everybody around you, we're not changing. And when you're in the human capital business, when you're in the relationship industry business, coaching is that. If you don't have one eye on change, as chunky as it is, you will become irrelevant, you will become a mismanager, and your career is going to either run out of gas and you're going to leave angry and sour, or you're going to get removed legally because you don't understand the power of your words and how they land on the student-athlete today or the employee. Can I pick up this idea of change, Sue? Because I've actually got a quote from you. I might read it to you, actually, before I unpack it a little bit. You say, when you win, it takes an incredible amount of awareness and discipline to stay curious about how you can close the gap between where you are and what the ultimate team could look like. And what intrigued me, actually, when I saw that quote was this idea of curiosity as a lead indicator of team improvement. And I'm wondering... You've talked about this evolution you had, but where did this idea of curiosity as a key facet of your leadership come from? Well, I always had that, even when I was transactional to a fault. I would keep digging and digging and digging to try to find answers. I'm an innovator. I'm innately an innovator. I'm constantly curious about everything I see in life. Like, why did they build the bridge that way? I'm wondering what they had to do to be able to create those angles. Why is it that my one player can't hit that curveball? What is it about her kinetic chain that's not? So I innately had that. If you're not innately curious, you have to have the awareness to be disciplined to continue to ask the questions. So I understand that I was blessed with a wonderful gift of curiosity. But if you don't have it, I pray to God you have discipline because discipline will allow you to continue to ask those questions because players benefit when they have a coaching staff that is rooted in curiosity to make sure that the program is continually changing and developing and evolving with obvious standards, right? You're not going to just be picking the latest fad. You really, everything is based on fact. Everything is based on science as we know it at the time and a pattern of success before you adopt it as a principle. But once you do that, you've got to continually be doing that. And we're in a renaissance right now. I mean, think about it. Our world, our performance world, whether you're in corporate America or in sports, we're in a renaissance around the employee, the student athlete wants to be treated as the person they are in the work environment. I grew up with put up, shut up, go into a box, you're an athlete, do X and Y and get out of here and then go do your life. It was very segmented. It was very compartmentalized. There was a cleanliness about it that I also liked. Now all those lines are blurred. And so the challenge with our transformational leaders is how do I create the conditions for everybody to be seen and heard? Our people of color, how are we creating the conditions for inclusivity and these people to be seen and be heard without us saying, hey, you educate us, black person, you educate us on the pain. No, 
The black person shouldn't have to educate us. I'm a white woman of privilege. I had access from the day I was born to great schooling, great education, great athletics, great facilities, great transportation. So I was ahead of the game. As a white woman of privilege, I have to be the one that goes out and advocates for those people that didn't have access to excellence like I did. We didn't all start at the starting line the same. And we've, no matter you buy into that or not, it's a fact. And we've got to answer the call, especially when it comes to laying down that environment for employees to include people of diversity, people with different backgrounds, different sexual orientation, to be comfortable with our LGBTQ community. I always am fascinated by how, on one hand, people can love technology, they love their phone, but on the other hand, they don't want to change their leadership tactics. So we were able to adjust around communication technology. Why can't we adjust around our own micro relationships that we have with the teams that we're on right now? I mean, to our listeners, when was the last time you saw a payphone? Like we're not even thinking about payphones anymore. We've moved on so much. And I'm going to ask you to don't have that payphone mindset. Don't be sitting in 1972 here, put in the dime or the quarter And once we realize the responsibility as a leader to be an innovator, to be the host of a party, I always tell leaders, I often say, think about leadership like you're hosting a party. And when you host a party, you provide everything, even the things you don't like. Like, okay, here are the veggies. I hate veggies. I love candy. So I've got veggies and candy and meat for the party. The minute someone walks in, you're there to grab the door and welcome them in. Why aren't we doing that in the athletic field? Why aren't we doing that in corporate America? Why aren't we grabbing that new employee and saying, hey, I hope we have everything here for you. We see you. We want you to be comfortable and safe because when people feel safe, they'll go for it when it comes to courage. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So you have such energy, positivity. It just radiates through the screen. I wish everybody could see you you talking <laughs> the way you're gesticulating now. But I'd like to talk about the, apart from your answer just then, the other most powerful thing I heard you talk about is this idea of people having two voices in their heads, the strong voice and the weak voice, and that both voices play a role in our development. I'm really fascinated by this idea of the inner voice and working with people to make it more positive. Is there an example you can share of where you've really zeroed in and worked with someone on their inner dialogue and helped them evolve and change and improve their performance? 
Well, first, let me define it so everyone can really understand. This is from a scientific background, right? This is scientific evidence that we know that the conscious brain is just a tape recorder of our thoughts. We also know that thoughts that enter from the subconscious, we can't control. We can't control those. Those thoughts come to the forefront unannounced, sometimes uninvited. And that's what I call that weak voice. That weak voice is the one that has the doubt. The weak voice is the one that says, play it safe. The weak voice is the one that says you're not good enough. I mean, even for myself, I tell people this often, even for somebody like myself that's had enjoyed amazing success because of the people that were around me that helped me be better. I also want to share with you what I'm not. I wasn't in the normal reading. I read special books. I had academic disabilities is what we would call them today. Back in the day, it was just, you read from the purple books. And when you're in second grade, you know when there's five of you reading the purple books and there's 10 of you reading from the brown books, you know something's off. And so this idea of, oh, Sue's just blessed to have it all together. I didn't have it all together. I was told by my high school counselor, I didn't have the academic aptitude to make it at UCLA. And he said that in front of my parents. So I've had to deal with that weak voice that you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, you're not smart enough, your learning agility isn't where it needs to be. And then I learned, and science tells us this, what we actively do to answer that weak voice is the secret sauce. If we allow the thoughts to come in and to pound us down and we don't answer every thought with an affirmation, a true fact, evidence that you're capable of doing it, or evidence that you're ready to leap, you will find yourself dying inside and losing your enthusiasm and your optimism. And I call it being a stubborn optimist. The stubborn part says, good stubborn says, I'm not going to give in to that weak voice. Good stubborn says, I do see all the work you did Monday through Friday, that inventory that allows you to cross over that bridge to say, I'm ready in this moment. And to me, everything emanates from those two voices in your head and the awareness of when you're in your weak or your strong voice, because the awareness allows you to answer the call of that weak voice. Because we don't have to worry about when the thoughts are coming in just warm and fuzzy. It's like, man, hang on and yell yippee because all is good in your brain. But today, because of the instability, because of all the uncertainty, doubt seeps in and it's winning the conversation. And you're constantly having over 60,000 thoughts a day. So this conversation is going on. Who's winning the conversation? Who's getting the last word? May your strong voice always get the last word. And I often tell people, would you ever date your inner voice? And this idea, would I ever date my inner voice? Woo! That helps build awareness around your strong and your weak voice. I want to pick up this theme, actually, of your weak and strong voice. And as you just said there, you know, managing and having this stubborn optimism. Because you also talk a lot about having a, a strong recovery routine yep. as a leader and this being the key to sustainable success. And this, for me, feels like a really strong area where people in leadership roles outside of sport can learn from those that have been in the athletic field. Could you tell us a little bit about this recovery routine that you talk about and how it could be applied for someone who's not involved with a sporting team? When it comes to performance, remember, corporate performance, you're asked to perform every day, or athletic performance. Those that don't have what we call a next play 
next event mindset. How do we push through hard or failure? I call it a failure recovery system. And what you have to understand is if you can always remember that who you are supersedes what you do. So who I am as a ball player is always going to be more important than whether I got the hit or not. Who I am as an employee is always going to be more important than whether I won the sales contest. And once you understand how to separate those, you can manage failure because you can keep the failure small and your integrity and your character big. At the end of the day, character drives the process. If you can always remember who I am drives how I do my work, those two things are the most important out of the three. The third thing is the result, and we actually can't control the result. We can only control who we are and how we do our process, and we have to let the results fall where they may. You can't control whether you win the game. You can only control the process to set yourself up to get the result or win the game or win the contest or be the best company in the industry. I'm talking about companies and, and industry. After softball, you move across and you start the business one, softball.com. And I've been to the site and it proudly announces that the mission is to inspire the player, organize the parent and educate the coach. I was really intrigued though about the starting point for this website because it says in the background that you interviewed over 20,000 families to arrive at this, this deep-seated wisdom or this, this mission that you've articulated. There are so many questions about families that I would love to get into with you, but possibly just something high level. What surprised you the most about the results as you started to sift through them? What surprised me the most, and let me go through each demographic, what surprised me the most was how ill-prepared we're providing leadership for the youth coach. Because remember, that's just a mom or dad that raised their hand and said, I'll try to do this. How ill-prepared the youth coach is. We're doing a horrible job on teaching them how to manage 10 to 15 people. And that is coming from them. They're saying to us, my Lord, please help me. I don't know how to manage people. I'm a dad that is a baker. I run a bakery myself and my son, and now I'm in charge of 15 girls. He's screaming for help on how to manage a group. To the mom and dad sport parent, they're saying, holy smokes, we don't know who to trust because youth sports is unregulated. There is no U.S. Like we have a USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture that oversees the quality of our food. We don't have a United States Sports Association that oversees the quality of how we're teaching our young people. And the parents don't know who to trust. And in America, path to college, because we provide scholarships in this country, path to college is a huge, huge moneymaker for all these youth coaches that are going to say, come play for my team. I'm going to get you a scholarship. The poor parent is completely disorganized on how to set up criteria for who to trust. And last and probably the most impactful, I didn't realize how unhappy, how fragile and sad the student athlete is because everybody has stopped listening to them. The game isn't as fun. We took away the innocence in the game by having them compete at such an early age, I wish we would create a federal mandate that children can't start competing 
until they're a teenager. I honestly wish we could do that. So we would have more free play, more unstructured play, allowing them to grow without pressure. We have a six and under national championship in this country. Talk about stupid Americans. What in God's name are we doing? And we need to recalibrate this in one softball. Our vision is to close that information gap for the parent, to assist the coach, and most importantly is inspire that young girl to stay in the game longer because we lose 67% of our girls leave youth sport by the time they're a teenager. You started coaching in 1980. You've got this wealth of experience driven by failure and success and everything in between. If I had a magic time machine and I could take you back and introduce you to that that young woman that was just starting out coaching in 1980, what advice would you give her? I would just say shut up and listen more because when you're doing the yelling, you learn nothing. Perhaps then I can finish with one last question that maybe builds on this lesson or this theme a little bit. Now, I'd like to, before I ask a question, I'd like to just give context with a quote, another one of your wonderful, wonderful quotes. And you say, the lifelong impact as a great leader is about how you challenge the belief system of your student athletes. That's what you're going to hope you do when you're done. You're going to hope they come back and say, you taught me belief. Now, it's a wonderful goal to aspire to, but I wanted to ask you about legacy And in particular, what is the legacy that you hope you're leaving as a coach? I think for me, it's to be a role model that it's okay to be flawed, but it's not okay to stay in your flaw. And to be a role model to other men and women that you can be a part of this leadership industry and you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be the end-all, know-all. But what you do have to be, you have to be humbled by the journey of curiosity. You have to be inspired by this career that affords you the opportunity to change how people think about performance. The idea that as a coach, I can be a person that influences somebody else for the rest of their life. I mean, think about that. Leader's job isn't just a title. It is a lifelong impact you have on somebody. And may we never forget that. How we speak to them stains their brain, especially youth, for life. I had a coach, John Springman, who told me, I remember the day he told me this, at San Clemente Triton Baseball Field. He said, Susie, you have an amazing attitude and you have great effort, and that's gonna take you a long way. Don't let anybody ever take those things away from you. Effort and attitude became the foundation of my life. I brought the inspiration from my parents with effort and attitude. So this idea that you can change the way people think, you can change their belief system, you can change them from being a shy, self-doubting, backup right fielder that never gets to play to graduating from college or graduating from high school or graduating from junior high to say, I'm ready, bring on the world because I understand how to walk that bridge of self-belief. I understand how to manage next play, next mindset. I'm able to feel good about who I am that drives that process and I don't worry about the results because the results don't define me. To me, that's powerful. So I think effort 
attitude, belief is a wonderful way to finish this conversation. It's been an absolute privilege to spend this time with you on this beautiful morning in California. And I thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you and good luck. And just know I'm always in your back pocket. Once again, thank you for your persistence in getting us together. Appreciate you and happy holidays. Hi, everyone. It's Jim here. You've been listening to our discussion with Sue Enquist. Some of the other key highlights for me were Sue's thoughts on the importance of surrounding yourself with people who are not like you and embracing openness and curiosity to learn from those people how the great coaches live their values and enact them every day and because of that are able to influence people in a positive way and wanting to leave a legacy where people realize that it's okay to be flawed. You don't need to be perfect, but you do need to be curious when it comes to helping people think about performance. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please reach out, let us know. Just like Andrew Plaisto in Germany, who wrote us a review saying, really enjoying these podcasts. Great to be able to take learnings from those with a passion for sport into business. Great initiative. And Gemma Sandberg, who, after listening to our interview with Norma Plummer, wrote, love listening to this episode and hearing Norma's techniques to get player buy-in. Hashtag legend. Andrew, Gemma, thank you. It's interaction like this with people from around the world who listen to our show that give Paul and I great energy. And if you'd like to send us your thoughts, all the details on how you can connect with us and other people who are interested in the leadership insights from great sports coaches are in the show notes. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.